North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS and the Korea Foundation are convening the annual ROK U.S. Strategic Forum on the 70th anniversary of the war. Panels will discuss how Korea can transition from mere armistice to a permanent peace, and how regional powers can achieve it. Experts and high-ranking officials will convene virtually for this unprecedented event. Session 2. Pandemics and the Global Responses examines the current global health crisis and the impact of pandemics on the world. This session will be moderated by Ms. Anna Feifeld, Beijing Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. Featured panelists include Dr. Chul Chung, Dr. Yung Mi Ji, Dr. Victor Cha, and Dr. J. Stephen Morrison. Audience, please welcome Ms. Anna Feifeld. everybody and welcome to panel two about pandemics and the global responses. I'm Anna Fifield from the Washington Post. Uh, I've just spent the last three months in my home country of New Zealand which has almost entirely eliminated coronavirus and I'm, but I'm now back in China where I'm in a quarantine hotel and uh, having the predictable internet problems which is why you can't see me. I've had to dial in for this event. So Please bear with me uh, as I try to conquer these uh, technological problems, but I think we'll have a great session nonetheless uh, with four excellent experts on the subject. Uh, joining us from South Korea, we have Dr. Young Mi Ji from the Korea Foundation and one of South Korea's top infectious diseases experts. We also have Dr. Cho Chung from the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy, or KIEP, and joining us from CSIS in Washington, D.C. is Victor Cha, the Korea Chair, and Stephen Morrison, the Director of Global Health Policy Center. So the, the subject before us today is a very broad one. Uh, we'll try to focus it on South Korea's response to the coronavirus outbreak and compare South Korea's response and actions with that in the United States. So. Uh, We'll drive the conversation from here for maybe the first half of the session, but I will leave plenty of time for questions. So please submit them through the system and um, I will see them and ask them of the audience. Um, but to start things off, I will turn to uh, Dr. G in South Korea, um, where you know South Korea was lauded uh, for its very successful uh, response to the coronavirus at the beginning, the way that it uh, rapidly ramped up to widespread testing, it instituted extreme contact tracing, and uh, what for many countries would seem to be radical transparency. But even for all those initial gains, uh, South Korea has had a few bumps. It's undergoing a, another second wave uh, at the moment. Um, but still nothing like what the United States has been seeing. And, and this week, obviously, the U.S. has chalked up a very grim new record, recording a new daily high number of cases. So I'd like to start uh, turning to you, Dr. G, to ask you about the South Korean kind of the way South Korea was prepared for this uh, outbreak. Obviously, it went through SARS. Um, but most recently in 2015, going through the MERS outbreak, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome outbreak there. And there was a lot of criticism at that time that South Korea hadn't been prepared enough for the outbreak and that it didn't have the right systems in place. So I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit, uh, but you were involved in the MERS response at that time. But talk to us about what South Korea learned from that 2015 epidemic uh, and how it applied those lessons to respond rapidly to coronavirus this year. Uh, thank you for the question, Anna. Uh, as you have seen from the video clip, uh, 
It is very true that Korea learned a lot from Mars experience in 2015. So based on those lessons learned from the uh, outbreak of Mars, uh, government took various actions. Uh, firstly, in terms of governance, uh, Korea CDC was upgraded with new establishment of emergency operations center uh, and also laboratory analysis center. Those two centers uh, played a significant role in uh, this COVID-19 response. And secondly, uh, the emergency use licensing, uh, those uh, allowing the early uh, licensing of uh, production of the kits was also, also the key. And that re really made us the possible to, to, uh, to extend our um, nationwide laboratory testing from a very early stage. And next thing uh, I can mention is uh, infrastructure, of course. So we have strengthened infrastructure uh, based on our experience from Mars, so such as negative pressure room and ventilators, ECMO, and uh, respiratory triage, those were prepared. But I still think those are not enough. So if we still have to better prepare for the next uh, peak. And then uh, the, as you have seen from the video, so we have uh, also uh, enhanced our risk communication based on our experience from Mars. So from those uh, period of Mars outbreak, government was uh, criticized for not sharing the information of affected uh, hospital list with the public. Uh, so, um, so with, uh, with that, uh, Korea CDC established a new uh, risk communication team and those uh, risk communication was really dedicated uh, for the communication with the public. And this time there was daily briefing uh, actually twice a day in the morning and in the afternoon. So government actually provides full trust to the public. And that really was, uh, that led to the, uh, the full trust, uh, public full trust in the government actions. And also, I have to mention the um, amendment of the relevant law. So we have revised the uh, National Infectious Disease Prevention and Control Law to allow Korea CDC uh, to, to collect and share data with, uh, with uh, relevant uh, institutions and also with the public. And in addition to those uh, four, uh, factors. I also want to emphasize the importance of um, public-private partnerships. So in many ways, there were a very close partnership among uh, public and private sectors. So for example, uh, community treatment centers and uh, a drive-through and walk-through uh, sampling and testing method was proposed, were proposed by private sectors uh, and adopted by, uh, uh, by, by the government. And also there was, there was very close collaboration between different ministries. So those uh, different ministries worked together to create um, a smart tracking system for the epidemiological investigation and also a safety protection app was applied to, to monitor the quarantined people. And, um, Above all, I want to also emphasize early actions. The government took actions right after the report from China to WHO at the end of last year. So in January, government took many, many actions. So on 27th of January, as Victor also explained, there was very important meeting with the pharmaceutical companies to discuss uh, the production of uh, diagnostic kit for the COVID-19 based on uh, emergency use license. And at that time, we only had four cases. So those actions were very, very critical for, for the, uh, the uh, early testing. So uh, I think in, in a summary, government handled this crisis without 
no uh, without lockdown and with minimum uh, travel restrictions in a very transparent and democratic way uh, based on extensive testing from a very early stage. I think that mm -hmm. would be my summary. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. D. I think, I mean, some of these things you've described could be done by any country uh, if they had the political will to do so, but some of them seem um, specific to Korea, well, the MERS experience, but also just the level of technology in Korea and the way they're able to push the alerts and the information out to people. But I think one thing that's been very surprising, um, I mean, to me and to I'm sure many people around the world is the way, as you mentioned, the South Korean government has been able to access so much personal data during the course of this, to be able to access uh, cell phone data, credit card usage, security camera footage, all of the, you know, even GPS uh, records from people's cars, and all of this kind of stuff would um, cause a firestorm in many other countries and, and set off a lot of alarms about privacy. Um, but in South Korea, there doesn't seem to have been much concern about that. I mean, how can you explain that? Is there just a higher degree of social trust in, in South Korea? Um, I'll ask Dr. G again if you could just uh, briefly respond to that first. And then I'll ask Dr. Chung if he has thoughts on that too. Okay, thank you for the question again. Uh, it is very true that um, private is privacy issues should be handled with extreme care. And we need to see both sides of public health and privacy. In Korea, MERS outbreak actually triggered government action towards public health uh, side. And as I mentioned, government was blamed for, the, uh, for, the, for not sharing the information with the public uh, very quickly. Uh, and also part of infected cases that those were uh, really criticized by, by the public. So based on that criticism, uh, as I mentioned, the, the relevant law was uh, uh, amended. So um, I think there is some misunderstanding that uh, on Korea's policy. Uh, so this is not really like a cent uh, authoritarian or, or um, centralized government action. The truth is that though our policy is, is based on it's coming from the uh, public demand. So um, I think there was some consensus from the society to really amend the law to allow Korea CDC to collect data and share with the public. But still, I think we can, uh, we can refine our, our law after outbreak is over. We have to really see what we can really do better protect the, um, the privacy of infected uh, individuals. Okay. Dr. Chung, would you agree with that? Is this widely accepted by South Korean people? Um, yeah, I agree. But the, the, I, I guess I'd like to add a little bit more, maybe, uh, you, know, the, you know, the government and the, the, uh, the authority actually sort of the, the revised the, 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 uh, the degree of the, the showing this... Um, uh, you know, information uh, in order to uh, preserve certain level of the, the privacy, I guess. And I think the, uh, the I don't know other societies, but the, the personally, I think the, the trust is the most important uh, you know, things these days, especially in Korea. And, uh, you know, I, I, I also suggest the, the you know, policymakers to consider the, the social capital and social cohesion based on the, the trust building. Uh, in order to, you know, the, the, uh, push for some uh, policies, especially in economic policies and the, the trade policies. Okay, great, thank you. And Dr. Cha, do you have anything to add on this privacy subject? Yeah, Anna, thanks. I, uh, I do. Um, 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 so I, the first thing is, uh, just a couple of things. The, the first thing is that um, in terms of the uh, the coronavirus experience in Asia more broadly. I mean, you know, this is, this is one instance or one example in world politics where Asia was just so far ahead of the West. I mean, Asia, as you know, was so much better prepared for what came with COVID-19 because of the experiences with, corona, with coronaviruses in the past, in particular in Korea. The mayors 
virus. And, and um, I mean, Dr. G is the real expert on this. I'm the novice. But when I went back and read some of the after action reports of doctors um, in Hong Kong and in Singapore and in Korea dealing with SARS, in 2002, 2003, and mayors in 2015. It was just amazing to read because all of the things that they were talking about that were happening in emergency rooms, you know, absence of PPE, uh, frontline healthcare workers getting sick, pitching tents in, in um, parking lots to create, um, um, to create improvised uh, isolation wards were all the things that we were seeing happening in the United States, um, uh, you know, in, earlier in the spring. Um, and so th they were they were just better prepared because of the experiences they went through. I think there was um, I think there was like two cases of mares nationally in the United States in 2015 uh, and maybe a dozen cases. Uh, well, you know, Ebola was the other one. There was like a dozen cases of, of Ebola in the entire country, maybe two dozen cases of SARS. So it just didn't even move the needle in, in the United States. And, and yet it had a deep searing effect um, in Asia. Uh, hence all of the changes that Dr. G was talking about. Um, second, um, I think, you know, Anna, you talked about comparing to the United States. I think it's very clear when we look at the Korean response and the U.S. response that the, the, the national government, or in our case, the federal government, national government in Korea led from the front and not from behind. Um, in terms of bringing together, as Dr. G said, public and private sector, um, <clears throat> and really played sort of a leading role in this. And that has, you know, been, I'm sure Steve has something to say, but really been absent in the U.S. case. Um, and in terms of privacy, you know, I, I, I think the interesting thing here, and the verdict is not out yet, is that you're right. I mean, the, the government has taken control of a lot of information has accessed a lot of information about private citizens. And I think, you know, the, when people look back on this, the real question will be, you know, do open democracies like Korea, when they have access to this information for public health and public safety reasons, are they able to, are, are they able to provide enough safeguards or self-restraint in a way so that that information is not abused? Uh, and, 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 and used in, in, um, in bad ways. And, you know, this, this may, this, we may see this question answered directly later after we go through this, when the government decides what it'll do with all this information that it has available. But um, as per your initial question, I don't think you can get the levels of social trust uh, that we've been talking about without the provision of the information. I mean, the reason there's no trust here in the United States is because nobody believes the information that they're getting from their political leaders. Um, and, and the data, it, it's not being suppressed, but the leaders are not drawing attention to it. Whereas, you know, in Korea, after mayors and, and SARS, there was a public demand, as Dr. G said, for the government to provide transparent and clear information. And and so the government was mandated with doing that. And when they created the laws to allow for this um, uh, accumulation of all this information and, and to provide it to the public, then it became the public's responsibility to comply, you know, with social distancing and mitigation efforts. So I, I don't think, I guess I'm trying to say, I don't think you can get the levels of social trust that you were talking about, Anna, in the question, without the government providing the information. So I think trust and whole, the whole question of privacy information are interconnected in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. But this, I'll turn that over now to Stephen Morrison. And Stephen, do you think that, uh, I mean, like Victor said, Asia was really ahead of this and reacting very quickly, but there's nothing particularly Asian about this response, right? Like, why is it that other countries didn't take it seriously or didn't move swiftly enough at the beginning to respond, didn't see these alarm bells coming? Thank you, Anna. May I just first add a, add a remark to what the discussion on the technology? Um, Please. Um, you know, I think it's important when you're talking about trust in technology in the case of Asia, I think it's important to emphasize that the bargain that the public has uh, uh, with their government is that there will not be uh, egregious abuse. And the bargain is that the, 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 the payoff 
for compliance is minimizing the disruption of economies and schooling. So the public understands what the bargain is, what the compact is. And I think that has been validated and put into legislation and, 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 and socialized as an idea over the last decade and a half. And, and, and I think that historical experience and that cultural and political compact is, is really fundamental. And when you have that technology, you are able to put it to great use at the very front end. And also when you have outbreaks, cluster outbreaks, what, what's problematic for the United States and others that did not uh, uh, intervene early and aggressively, but intervened sloppily and late, uh, is that technology doesn't really provide a whole lot of benefit for us in that context. Contact tracing in the United States is going to be done by people walking around and getting on the phone and talking to people. Your question around how did we get such a catastrophe uh, in Europe, Europe is now coming out of this, but Europe was, was very late and, and fragmented in its responses in the United States, now Brazil, other, other Latin American states are, we're seeing uh, uh, and, and in India as well now, we're seeing a rush of cases, uh, as you pointed out, um, a historic high. I mean, the fact that in America, 2.3 million people infected and 122,000 dead is just an astonishing fact. So uh, trying to explain why we had such a abdication of responsibility at the highest levels has to do with the nature of this presidency, I believe. But it's not the only factor. Our public health system decayed but after the uh, 2008 and 2009 recession. We, we disinvested in public health in the 2,800 public health jurisdictions around this country. They lost 56,000 jobs in, a, in 25 to 30% of their budgets. We have a highly fragmented public health system and, and, that has, and we're paying a huge price for that. So this virus, has been able to take full advantage of all of our, the weaknesses that have been exposed in our, in our very inadequate health system. It's also uh, uh, targeted those who are poor, those who are of color, and those who are otherwise marginalized. And obviously it's taken a huge toll on the elderly. So the protections that we, you might see in other societies uh, were not in place here either. And so we, it's, we've had, just enormous toll taken by the those who were poor of color, black and brown, and those who were poor and those who are elderly or have underlying uh, conditions. Um, the um, what we're seeing right now, this surge of cases, 36, 37,000 yesterday, the highest ever. Uh, uh, the the other peak we had was April twenty fourth. So we're back into a regressive, very furious cycle. It does have to do with increased testing, but only around the margins, really. What it has to do with was premature opening. It has to do with behavioral reversion to complacency and, and, and disregard of the guidance, particularly by young people. Uh, of the lack of capacity locally, we're seeing this over and over again in the South and the West, the lack of testing capacity, the lack of ability to isolate, quarantine, and contact trace. Those capacities that exist in Asia do not exist at a local level. And we're seeing a continued abdication of leadership. Vice President Pence uh, briefed the Senate, uh, the Senate Republicans in a private session yesterday and told and, and, and mis misrepresented reality and encouraged them to focus on the positives that are happening in the midst of this, this wildfire that is raging through over 20 states. The last thing I'd say is that we cannot deny the, the speed and perniciousness of this virus. This virus is, is an extraordinary virus. It moves with speed. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's easily concealed. It has delayed impacts. Uh, and we have just not been able to build the capacities to manage it. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, I mean, terrifying just to watch from a distance what's happening there. And obviously, uh, you know, China has really tried to um, capitalize on the American more bungling, bumbled response to the coronavirus outbreak. 
there. I mean, we've also seen the Trump administration try to use this as part of its um, broader hostilities with China. There's a real political component there. But separate from that, uh, turning back to Victor Cha, do you think that COVID will reshape the dynamics and the relationships within Asia itself? Is this going to prompt countries like South Korea and Japan to rethink their relationships or their dependence on China, at least? Or, you know, how much is the United States trying to put pressure on its allies in the region to do that? Um, yeah, it's a great question, Anna. You know, I think, um, uh, you know, on the, I would say that the short answer to your question is, I think it will put pressure on allies and partners of the United States but not directly as a result of COVID. Um, what, and what I mean by that is that uh, while China also has dealt relatively better with the virus, at least later on than uh, the United States did, um, there's still lots of questions about a lack of transparency about um, um, uh, their acquiring of information and using an almost dystopian form of contact tracing and, and um, I mean, you know better than I, the barcodes. I mean, you're sitting in a quarantine hotel right now and probably mm -hmm. being everyone, every movement is being watched in, in one way or another. Um, but I think the way it does put pressure on allies is that, the, you know, as you said, COVID-19 has led to a worsening of the relationship between the United States and China not an improvement of the relationship between the United States and China. In almost every piece of writing um, in this field, as well as in the international relations field prior to COVID-19, the arguments were that when we have transnational pandemics like this, uh, this is where countries should come together because this virus doesn't know borders, that we should be coming together, whether it's with regard to uh, uh, contact tracing, travel guidelines, a vaccine, that we should be working together. And if anything, it's just pulled us apart. And the way that puts pressure on other countries is that we increasingly see more situations where the lead power in the international system and the rising power are putting countries like Korea and others in what I call binary choice situations, where um, they must make choices uh, because both powers are asking them to take one side or another. Um, <clears throat> and we haven't seen that so much on COVID, but we certainly have seen it on other issues like 5G, uh, Blue Dot Network, uh, EPN, um, Hong Kong. I mean, you know, there are a whole variety of issues. So, um, and, and, and so the reason I think this is new and different is that in the past, there were isolated cases in which countries like Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Germany um, might have, um, there were isolated cases where they might have been asked by the United States by, to take one position and by China to take another. But, uh, but we're seeing that more and more now in a lot of the choices that are being put to these countries, uh, which puts them in a really difficult position because for many of them, their top security partner is the United States and their top trading partner is China. Um, and so I would say what, you know, what COVID has done and what the mutual recriminations between Washington and Beijing over COVID has done has only widened that gap and fueled, I think, the inclination on both sides in Washington and Beijing to put pressure on countries to take, um, uh, uh, to take basically zero-sum choices. It's either us or them. Uh, and that's, I think, both perplexing and dangerous for all of these other countries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to this, I mean, the political side of it that you're describing and the diplomatic side of it is still playing out. And, but the, I guess the fears are building, and I'll turn to Dr. Chung now, about the economic impact that this is going to have on the global economy. But, um, you know, we're already seeing it in, in China where all of this started. And so, Dr. Chung, can you talk a, bit, a little bit about how severe you think this uh, economic impact is going to be starting in Asia. Um, and, you know, already we've seen it's not just the supply chain disruptions, which have been enormous, but there in South Korea, you know, that's so reliant on Chinese tourism more and more and Chinese business in general trade, like how South Korea is dealing this, with this and, and how you think 
China's biggest trading partners in general might respond? Is this going to encourage more diversification away from China in trading relationships? Yeah, thank you, Anna. That's a great question. Um, as as you may know, the uh, the there was an uh, in- incident of the uh, the automobile industry, the uh, the wiring harness uh, that's a you know part for the uh, the you know automobile manufacturing. Uh, due to this the uh, the pandemic, there was the uh, the uh, supply uh, supply you know disruption uh, coming from the uh, China. So some of those the uh, the automobile industry uh, plants. Had to shut down for some time. For some time, but I guess the other more problem uh, to the uh, this uh, automobile industry, for example, is the uh, the weak uh, demand and a uh, big drop in the uh, the production. And the, especially for Korean uh, manufacturers, uh, the exports dropped a lot. Like the the uh, in May, for example, 57% uh, decrease compared to the uh, last year, uh, and the uh, the overseas production. Uh, Dropped by uh, 36% until May this year compared to the uh, the last year. Um, so because of the uh, the protectionism and deglobalization uh, and the uh, the pandemic, I think the uh, that there are some uh, structural changes in the uh, the global value, global value chains and the uh, the uh, the supply chain. Um, even before the uh, the pandemic, though, uh, there was the uh, the uh, the supply chain uh, you know shortening. Uh, actually, was uh, a trend, and also the uh, the global value chains becoming uh, more of the uh, the regional uh, value chains. For example, the USMCA, uh, you know, highlighting the uh, the and tightening uh, the uh, the rules of origin, so uh, leading to the uh, the more concentration of production activity uh, in the United States or the, uh, the in the in North America, for example. So uh, they will actually, the, uh, you know, bring some uh, you know, demand for the uh, the restructuring of the uh, the you know value chains uh, for the uh, the companies and the uh, the you know firms across the country. I mean the other uh, world. Um, I think the uh, the uh, some of those the uh, the you know answers for the uh, the Korean uh, you know uh, manufacturing com- uh, firms uh, is the, uh, the to uh, diversify the uh, the you know. Uh, the supply chains, and also going for the the safer uh, supply chain, uh, you know, so that the the in, uh, they can uh, reduce and the minimize the the disruption uh, coming from some other uh, crisis. Um, I think the the there was some you know trouble in terms of the the you know uh, demand and the the. Um, you know the the activities the the in uh, tourism and especially the, the services industry. Uh, I think the 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 you know the situation is uh, more uh, more uh, serious uh, because the the services are different from the the manufacturing because manufacturing can be uh, intertemporally uh, distributed, uh, meaning that the the maybe there was a decrease in the demand and production, but you know, we can come back uh, later and then the, the make up for that. But the, the services are very much time dependent and, uh, you know, foregone services are uh, usually very difficult to uh, recover. Um, that's why the, the uh, you know, tourism and the, those services industry actually suffer uh, more. So, uh, you know, for example, the, but still, you know, these days uh, we call it the revenge consumption meaning that yeah, we had to be uh, social distanced and also you know some 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 countries had the, the some lockdowns so after the, the that you know severe period uh, some of those consumers got, uh, come out and uh, consume more uh, but the other there's a limitation uh, to that uh, you know revenge consumption especially for the other services uh, i think the other Right now, I guess the, the you know Chinese uh, tourists uh, do not come as much uh, uh, as many as before, uh, and it is more serious uh, than the 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 case of the the Thad, uh, you know, a few years ago, like in uh, 2017. Uh, but since the Koreans cannot go abroad, uh, I guess the the Korean uh, cons- you know tourists actually replace some of the, those uh, Chinese and the the foreign uh, tourists. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. domestically, but I guess the the um, you know the the cross country 
across the border, the, the tourism actually is uh, suffering a lot. And I think the, the, there should be some more, you know, collaboration. And I, uh, that actually it will have to do the, uh, uh, with the, the, some solutions to the, the, this, uh, you know, the, the health crisis uh, related, mm -hmm. these, you know, uh, solutions. Yeah, great. I love that idea of revenge consumption. I did a fair bit of revenge consuming in New Zealand once we came out of lockdown there. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, but just to go back to a, a point that uh, Dr. Cha made before about binary choices, I think, I mean, one of the places I think where this is playing out is in the WHO. So, uh, Stephen Morrison, China obviously is trying to assert more and more influence over the WHO and and fill the vacuum left by the United States uh, during this was a result of this coronavirus outbreak. Um, how concerned should we be about this? How concerned are you about this and what can be done about it, if anything? Well, I'm uh, deeply disturbed by the actions taken by the Trump administration to withdraw a membership and, 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 and end funding. Um, that's a, uh, a dangerous and reckless decision uh, coming in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, the Chinese, this opens the door for expanded Chinese influence. We saw this at the World Health Assembly where the China, where um, President Xi tested, uh, appeared uh, remotely and spoke and pledged $2 billion, still to be determined what that means, uh, but also pledged cooperation on the, uh, 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 on the dissemination of a safe and effective vaccine. Uh, but obviously didn't want, didn't want to uh, uh, really discuss the realities of what happened uh, late last year and earlier this year in terms of the stumbles or the con concealment and other measures which, uh, which accounted for the spread in this period. Um, so we shall see if they follow through with, if China follows through um, with those commitments. I don't think that having China play a bigger role in the, in the world health organization is, is by definition a bad thing. I mean, people have been pressing China for many years to make a, a much stronger commitment than it currently does in terms of its financial pledges and, and the like. Um, I think that uh, is certainly if, um, if Vice President Biden is elected president uh, in November, there'll be a reversal of the WHO decision early next year, and the United States will resume a strong leadership position there. Okay, yeah, just picking up on what you said about the vaccine there. Obviously, the, there are many countries around the world uh, racing to try to uh, develop a vaccine for the coronavirus, and this has turned into yet another kind of geopolitical position, uh, competition between the United States and China there. Uh, is it a bad thing, Dr. Morrison, to have a race like this? Like, could it be a good thing if, if you know, various countries are making uh, vaccines at the same time? Well, I don't think there should be any surprise that uh, there is a race underway given the gravity of what's happened to this entire planet and the need for safe and effective vaccines in, in order to get out from underneath uh, the, the, the consequences, the economic and health consequences of these dual, of this, these dual crises. Um, you're, you're right, there is a race. Uh, the fact that the US and China are in a very conspicuous uh, escalating confrontation that's become so uh, conspiratorial and, 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 and so prone to uh, recriminations. And now we have, you know, uh, slurs like Kung, Kung flu being used on the campaign trail with great, great regularity and the like. Um, th this is feeding this, this notion that the United States and China want to be, be the first to come forward with a safe and effective vaccine. Um, both countries are putting very, very substantial sums uh, into the candidates that they favor. There's 183 vaccines under development. There's about 14 that the U.S. is looking at very closely, and we've made huge bets with five major firms. Well, one mod modest biotech and four global firms. The Chinese are, are operating with their candidates, but there are many, other, uh, many others out there under development. The question here is, will the decision will will institutions be be bent uh, to political prerogatives in order to make judgments prematurely around the safety and efficacy uh, of the vaccine, and will the best 
vaccine be chosen without nationalist uh, calculations entering that because we've got so many candidates out there and there is no mechanism at the moment uh, that that is out there no no method of coordination the, the coherent and reliable coordination yet that would help a di put a dialogue together the US China strategic confrontation has basically pushed things in the uh, direction uh, uh, opposed to coordination and and that confrontation has paralyzed the Security Council so we need to ask ourselves how are we going to move beyond that towards some level of coordination. I think you're seeing many of the, uh, the big global firms beginning to cut deals with the high income countries. They're beginning to make some commitments on low income countries through the Gavi Alliance, but it's totally unclear what happens with middle income and lower middle income countries. What sort of access will they have? So, Anna, can I add some comments? Please go ahead. So uh, it is true that there is real race for the vaccine development, but I think there should be because uh, even though there are 100, you mentioned 186 uh, under development, you don't really know at, at the end how many will succeed. So there should be uh, the, the, a lot of efforts to, to really develop vaccines. And you mentioned about no coordination of the, uh, the vaccine development, but uh, in fact, there are some efforts to, to coordinate the vaccine development uh, among different uh, countries and developers uh, by WHO. And I'm a member of those uh, team for the R&D blueprint for, for the vaccine development. So uh, if you see the uh, website of WHO, there is real um, update of the, uh, the clinical trials for the vaccine de development by different countries and developers. And um, um, as you mentioned, there, there was a, a global vaccine summit, I think uh, three weeks ago, uh, participated also by US, US and Korea and uh, many other countries, also WHO and Gavi and some other global health partners. Uh, pledging for the uh, vaccine access to low and middle income countries, I think. And I do hope that pledge will be really practiced uh, so, so that uh, not only rich countries and but also low and middle income countries have access to those vaccines. But I, I want to emphasize that there is some efforts uh, also by US NIH. US NIH is real, really the partner of WHO. They're working very closely for the International Solidarity Clinical Trial for Vaccines. Thank you very much, Dr. J. I'm back there. I'm sorry, I, I dropped out of the call. Thank you, Victor, for um, taking over there. Um, so we've got some good questions coming through from the audience now. If you do have questions, please do submit them, uh, and I'll ask them to the panelists. We have two very similar ones that are and great questions that have come from Wong Jung at CSIS and Justin Rhea at the Heritage Foundation, both concerning what happens with all of the uh, data and surveillance after the coronavirus uh, crisis has passed and how, uh, like what guidelines are in place in, the South, in South Korea for returning to normal in terms of privacy when the world overcomes COVID. Uh, that's a question from Justin Ree. And then uh, from Wong Yi Jong at CSIS, he has asked, will this kind of um, tech use become the new normal for public health uh, in Asia after coronavirus? So uh, Dr. G, I'll turn that over to you first. And I, I actually didn't catch your question very clearly. Can you repeat again? Can you repeat your question to me? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. So basically, what, are, what provisions are in place uh, to deal with all of this data and information that the South Korean government has collected from people during the coronavirus outbreak? Like, how will it be um, disposed of? Or like, is there a, is it, has it been discussed there that this will be, how it will be treated and how these systems will be unrolled? So, um I think all those data is only used by the limited 
people in Korea CDC only. So all the other parties involved in collecting data will only send those data to Korea CDC and only limited number of people will have access. And after a certain period, I think that all those data will be destroyed. So uh, I think uh, with also the spot tracking system uh, introduced in March, uh, th those data is more safer because it, um, automatically those data is, uh, is uh, uh, managed by the, the uh, database, which it, which is only accessible by the limited number of uh, Korea CDC uh, staff. Anna, can okay. I just add to this? It's Victor. Can I just add uh, quickly to this? Please do. I mean, I think <clears throat> it's a it's an important question, and uh, I, and I agree with what Dr. G said. Um, the only thing I would add is that um, uh, it it it's actually very important that the government and the health authorities are also transparent about what they're going to do with all of this data. You know, once, um, you know, once, uh, it, you know, the, we move out of this virus or move out of the sort of the crisis situation with this virus, because again, again, it goes back to this whole question of trust. I mean, I think right now, what you're seeing in places like Korea that you don't see in the United States is a virtual cycle between, you know, civic trust and obligation to, you know, civic responsibility and civic trust that's tied with transparency of information. And if there is, there is a growing distrust at what the authorities are doing with all of that data, that will then break that virtuous cycle again. So it's actually a very important question and you know, it's on the back end of this crisis, but it, it's what will enable Korea to be able to respond to the next coronavirus pandemic more effectively, as long as that virtual cycle is not broken. Yeah, I mean, very important question, and one, I mean, it's certainly on my mind, because here in China, I mean, there's been a lot of surveillance that has been rolled out, even more than usual, as a result of this virus, and I think it is definitely not going away when, once the virus is under control. It's, um, it's here to stay and very worrying uh, from a Chinese perspective. Um, we'll turn to another question here that's been submitted by Millie Kim from Georgetown University. I'll address this to Dr. Morrison. Um, how do you believe the election has affected the U.S. response to COVID-19, if in any way? And how, many, uh, how may the U.S. pandemic response play out as we get closer to the election? Has uh, public health become a bipartisan issue in the United States? That's a huge question, a very important one. Um, uh, I think it's pretty clear that um, uh, uh, the president... Um, is very worried about the uh, uh, state of the pandemic and the economic consequences as, as, as being very disruptive to his prospects for re-election. And in, to that degree, it's, 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 it's skewed the sentiment of, uh, of putting a very positive spin on what's happening. Uh, we've seen the dismantling of the task force. The task force is not, no longer a, a daily uh, a daily event, the White House task force. Uh, so the, we've moved beyond, in a way, moved beyond the kind of uh, in-depth, detailed daily discussion around the pandemic. Uh, and, and, and the preference has been to, uh, to not talk about it and to have things like the president's uh, interview in the Wall Street Journal and the, um, and the uh, Vice President uh, Pence's statement uh, or his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. These are becoming uh, campaign devices in trying to put a very positive spin on what's happening in the pandemic. Uh, on the other side of the equation, um, Vice President Biden has been very tough in his ads, his campaign ads, focusing upon the failures of the Trump administration in his, in his view, and has come up with a, with a plan uh, uh, in terms of all of the sorts of things. The expectation is that whoever wins will still face uh, a grave crisis uh, in January uh, that will be front and center in, uh, in, in before, the, before the next government. Thank you. I'm very pleased to see someone else has asked this question because obviously it's the one that I want to ask as well. It relates to North Korea. 
Um, so North Korea has famously said that it has no cases of coronavirus. Uh, I think nobody believes that. We've had China come out saying that they've sent tests uh, and assistance to North Korea. We've seen pictures coming out of North Korea of people in face masks. Um, so the question here is, is COVID-19 different from previous disasters that North Korea has had to face? How has this virus affected North Korea, its leadership, and the elite? Does Pyongyang face significant regime instability as a result of COVID-19? I mean, maybe for the first part of it, like how has the virus affected North Korea? Dr. G, do you have any information about that? I mean, how wide has the outbreak been inside North Korea? That, that was to Dr. G. Anyone here has any information on North Korea situation of COVID-19? Um, but I, I do hope one thing, actually. I mentioned this during some meeting with Vice Minister of, uh, Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs here in Korea. So um, North Korea belongs to uh, another WHO region, which is Southeast Asian region because of political region. And uh, South Korea belongs to Western Pacific region together with China and Japan. Um, so if North Korea can be part of WHO Western Pacific region, it will be much easier for us to have some data. Uh, and also the China is part of uh, this Western Pacific region, so it will be also uh, much easier for China to collaborate with. Uh, anyway, they will collaborate with uh, North Korea, but officially also uh, it will be good to collaborate between China and North Korea. If, if North Korea and China, South Korea belong to the same, same WHO regions. So that was one mm -hmm. of my hope. Okay, thank you. Sorry to put you on the spot with that one. Uh, Victor, do, do you have any information about or a view of how serious this has been for North Korea and how much uh, bigger than previous disasters that it's faced? I was muted there. Um, I think that um, it's, you know, so it's, it's first, uh, let me just reinforce the point about data, Dr. G's point about data. Um, it would be very helpful if uh, countries, uh, members of the WHO who are more friendly to North Korea were able to uh, uh, gather some data about what's going on inside of North Korea. Uh, you know, whether if they're in the South, whether countries in Southeast Asia, that, that would be, I mean, that would be, I think, very important right now. Um, so this is different and it's not different. Um, it's, it's certainly different in the sense that, um, uh, I mean, the virus itself, as Steve said, is pernicious. It's, it's incredibly different. Um, <clears throat> um, as I think many of the listeners are aware, uh, North Korea uh, doesn't have a public health infrastructure uh, capable of dealing with this. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, because of the virus's origins, uh, if there was one country that could have a virus that would be most dangerous to North Korea, it would be, you know, what emerged in in, in China because of the unique relationship between China and North Korea. So in that sense, it makes it different. It's not different in the, se in, in the way North Korea has responded um, in the sense that they publicly have stated that they have no confirmed cases. Uh, they say that it's not, a, it's not a problem for them. But at the same time, they have pivoted from that very public statement of strength to reach out quietly to, NG, to the NGO community, to others for, for help. Um, um, and I say that's not different because when you look at North Korea's response to uh, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, SARS and Ebola, they had exactly the same response, uh, which was to declare publicly, everything's fine, but, you know, but privately they're, they're they're asking for help indicated that, that, that the virus had entered their country. I mean, we know that some supplies are getting into North Korea overland um, at the Dandong Shinoiju border and um, the water route from Dalian to Nampo, but it's very limited due to the quarantines on both, both sides. Um, 
there is a, a carve out in the UN sanctions regime for humanitarian assistance that is being used uh, for COVID to uh, COVID um, um, uh, PP and other things to send to North Korea. But, um, you know, there's still lots of, uh, lots of unknowns. Kim Jong-un, uh, mm -hmm. and as you know well, has, uh, has not been visible uh, very much in, in 2020, uh, from the spring of 2020, winter to spring of 2020 and summer. Um, uh, his sister has played a much more prominent role in the recent um, um, uh, interactions with mm -hmm. South Korea and with the United States. And, you know, there I've seen some analysts that have speculated that this uh, could be a function of uh, COVID concerns. That's why he's, he's been seen on the Western part of the country and not in the capital city. So, you know, as always is the case with North Korea, there's, there's a lot, there's more that we don't know than we know, but, uh, but looking at sort of the nature of this pandemic and the public health system in North Korea, it's a big source of concern. Can I just add a remark here, Anna? Sure. Um, just a couple of things. One is, that uh, UN personnel who were outside of the country because of the holiday uh, earlier in the year um, have had great difficulty getting back. Uh, so I think that in terms of UNICEF and WHO, WFP presence has been pr is pretty thin, um, and that's been that's been problematic. Um, there's WFP's lately been uh, uh, making. Uh, noises that the malnutrition, which is already acute in the rural, within the, the rural populations, uh, has worsened. Um, and, and that is probably a reflection of the border, of the closure of the trade with, with China in this period. Um, uh, we have, as, as, as everyone said, we have no data on, on, on case counts or mortality around COVID-19, but we do have evidence of deteriorating malnutrition status. The other f interesting thing is that schools have reopened and quarantining has been relaxed somewhat on the foreigners, uh, which I take that to be some indication of a sense of a less a lessening of the threat of COVID-19. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we do need to wrap up. Uh, I have one more question, though, that I, has been on my mind, and I'd like to give this to Can Dr. I add to, that? To, to finish this uh, session. I just wanted to ask Dr. Chung, you know, South Koreans are famous for, or infamous for working extremely long hours and having a workaholic culture. Um, but now, out of necessity, many people have been forced to work from home for at least some of the time. Uh, during the outbreak. So do you think that this could finally force some kind of change in South Korean working culture? Or am I being too optimistic? Okay, uh, that's a uh, great question. Um, I think the other uh, workaholic Koreans, uh, maybe my father's generation, uh, it worked maybe, and then uh, to a certain degree my generation, but the younger generation uh, actually values the, uh, the balance between the work and uh, life and leisure. Um, I know that yeah, the, my father's generation uh, usually, you know, we had this, you know, one week, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Thursday, Friday, Friday, Friday. There was no, uh, you know, uh, the other uh, weekend. Uh, but the, the, in Korea, there is the 52-hour week uh, already before the, the uh, COVID-19. Uh, the, the, but the, with the... the um, the pandemic, together with the, uh, the new technology, uh, will accelerate transformation uh, into the, uh, the digital economy, meaning that the, uh, the, there's going to be a you know, huge change in the, uh, uh, in the work environment and the, uh, the uh, labor market uh, situation. And I think, the, uh, the, as you mentioned, that the working at home or the, uh, the, you know, uh, some other ways of the, uh, the uh, you know, work, uh, you know, uh, working environment, uh, will bring some more flexibility uh, to the, uh, the labor market. Uh, I think the, the, that's uh, something that's gonna, uh, that we, we are going to uh, see uh, after this the, the, you know, post-corona uh, you know, situation. Um, one thing I'd like to add uh, from economic side was uh, on the, uh, the uh, you know, coordination of vaccine, even if the, the vaccine is developed. 
Um, yeah, one concern is that the, uh, the, because of this pandemic, uh, there was a you know, huge increase in the, uh, the export restrictions. Before the, uh, the you know, pandemic, uh, the, uh, the protectionism was usually on the, uh, the, against the, uh, the imports, restricting imports from other countries. But the, the, this time, it's the, the uh, export restrictions on uh, medical supplies and the, the food. Uh, I think the, the, it's immoral, and the, the, that's going to actually harm those, uh, in, especially in the, the developing countries or you know, uh, some, uh, some countries like the, the North Korea. Uh, that's going to have the, the big impact on the, the inequality as well. And it's not going to help the, the tackle this uh, uh, health crisis. So I guess the, the uh, trade can actually help, not the, the deter the, the, this, uh, you know, recovering from the, the, this uh, health crisis and uh, economic crisis, I guess. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Tung. And uh, we've gone over time, but thank you, uh, everybody, Dr. Tung, Dr. Ta, Dr. G, and Dr. Morrison, four doctors and me. Uh, I'm sorry about my technical problems uh, at my end in China here, but thank you everybody for bearing with us. There is a short break uh, now, but please do not uh, go off the line. Stay online because there is another panel discussion coming up very soon on the US-South Korea alliance. So uh, thank you everybody for joining and we'll say goodbye. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.